0: Hey, well hi everybody, this is uh, Roger Horowitz of the uh, Hagley Center for the History of Business Technology Society with another episode of Hagley History Hangout. Uh, this series is a podcast series at the Hagley Library in which we interview authors and researchers who have been supported or assisted in some way by uh, our, our collections, by our funding and all that. Um, and today we're really happy to have with us Marcia Shatelan. Uh, who is professor of history and African-American studies at Georgetown University. Uh, Her first book was South Side Girls, Growing Up in the Great Migration. But most recently, and the topic today is her book, Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America. Uh, Now this book uh, won the Hagley Prize for the best book in business history in 2021. Um, I'm on the prize committee, so I read the book then and thought this is really outstanding. And I'm glad the rest of the committee agreed with me. it also was one of the Pulitzer Prize for history. We like that too, um, but we, got, we came first. So, you know, we're glad to see that our, I'm glad to see that we awarded the prize because of course this is an important book in business history. Um, it uh, really, uh, one of the breakthrough books I think in documenting the connections between business and racial capitalism in this country, really a terrific story. So Marcia, thank you for taking the time to join us to talk with us about your book.
1: It's a real pleasure. And thank you for the tremendous honor. Um, I've been familiar with uh, the Business History Conference and the Hagley Prize for a very long time. And so it was really, really a tremendous honor to receive it.
0: Well, thank you for that. So let me start off by asking you a really big question. Um, Tell us why you wrote this book, what questions or questions you wanted to address. And by this, I don't mean the inspiration, the moment something happened, I'm thinking about what was it that kept you going? A book is a big, big project. So what kept you going? What, Why did you do this? What are you trying to answer in this book?
1: So I appreciate that question about like how this project uh, was able to be sustained over many years. You know, the inkling for this idea came when I was in graduate school at Brown and I started becoming very aware of a lot of food justice movements. The film Super Size Me had come out when I was in graduate school and it was such a a shocking and appalling look at so many factors in the fast food industry. And then Fast Food Nation came out by Eric Schlosser. So the conversation about fast food was you know, particularly rich at that time. But one of the things that I thought was interesting is that when a lot of critics of fast food were engaging the question of race, particularly African-Americans, the narrative would be around some of the ways that public health practitioners talk about uh, nutritional deficiencies and dietary choices and, you know, health outcomes and overconsumption of fast food. But I think the historian in me always wondered, well, how did exactly did that happen? And what are the different ways that we can think about it? And that line of thinking was also running parallel to the fact that I used to eat fast food all the time as a kid. And one of the things I thought was really um, powerful was the fact that um, the local chapter of the National Black McDonald's Operators Association was in every kind of community event that I could remember. And I talk about in the book, You know, the first time that I was really engaged with African-American history in a serious way was because I was on a quiz bowl show that Black McDonald's operators paid for the prizes. And so I was trying to think about the different ways that fast food operates in Black communities, besides being a purveyor of food and a creator of culture, as well as the ways that it you know, bumps up against an important historical moment um, after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr.
0: So to, let me ask you to expand on that. So were there some particular narratives or arguments that you wanted to challenge in the course of writing this book?
1: I think I wanted to... um, disabuse people of the notion that there is like some type of natural affinity between Black people and fast food, that um, consumer choices have to be carefully cultivated and manipulated, and that the questions that I think public health and the questions that the food justice movement at that time were asking, um, I think were insufficient to really get to the heart of the issue of fast food in uh, Black communities, because I think people Um, often approached it as if people knew more about nutrition, if people knew better, they would make different food choices. But from my perspective, if we understand the history and if we understand the ways that McDonald's has ingratiated itself into Black communities um, on all of these different cultural, social, economic, and political levels, then perhaps we will think differently about what the source of the problem is.
0: You remind me of the... uh opening section in uh, The Omnivore's Dilemma by Michael Pollan, where he talks about how good McDonald's French fries are. Absolutely. And, 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 then, and then proceeds to, of course, lambast the the, you know, the system there. And I always wonder, well, maybe you should go back to those nice tasting French fries and, and think a bit more about, uh, about that part of the story. Um, well, let me ask you to develop a point that you alluded to that you yourself, admittedly, uh, ate McDonald's. And I will admit that You know, my kids like McDonald's too, and uh, over other kind of fast food. It's part of that, it's part of that. That's always been an issue when I engage with the food justice movement, as I write about food history myself. So let's get into it. Why did McDee's become so popular in the African-American community? How did that how did that take place?
1: Well, it was this kind of perfect storm after 68. Um, Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination was both shocking as well as inspiring a lot of questions about kind of what's the direction of Black freedom struggles. And at the point where this is unfolding in the late 1960s, there's also a lot of questions about whether the legislation of the past, you know, 15 years, if they were really making a difference in people's lives. And not unlike the George Floyd summer of 2020, people started saying things like, you know, Black business, Black uh, economic power, that if civil rights was not going to be delivered by serious federal intervention and investment, then it would be incumbent on Black communities to Do the work themselves. And this is an ideology that has a long history, but I think was um, resuscitated in the late 60s with the advent of the public private partnership, of organizations like the Ford Foundation asking questions about what their role was in racial justice. And so I think the environment was ripe for a kind of corporate shift towards Black America that was framed as not just kind of consumer marketing, but benevolent um, and aligned with the values of the civil rights struggle. So So here you have King's death opening up this kind of leadership vacuum and the strategy question. You have Richard Nixon supporting black capitalism, meaning the investment of black communities, Um, In order to ensure that there isn't a real challenge to the questions of segregation. And you have a lot of people who are exhausted, who have been involved in struggle for decades, who say, you know, maybe it is business. Maybe if we earn our way out of these problems um, that racism cause, Maybe we can find some relief. And you also have a demographic shift that's happening in a lot of urban communities. You know, we talk about white flight in terms of the housing market, but we lose sight of the business white flight that also happens throughout the 50s and 60s, where white owned businesses no longer want to be in the urban core, where they can be targets um, in uprisings, where there's questions about, you know, profiteering and exploitation. So you have the exit of business capital and this void, and McDonald's is a smart company. They see the potential in it, and it can all be done under the cover that it is socially progressive and that it's in line with uh, King's dream uh, for America.
0: Well, early on, you show that some some of the early civil rights protests, you know, this is, we're talking early 60s, were efforts to uh, open McDonald's franchises to African-American consumers. One of the things. Thing, oh, go ahead. You know, explain that. I mean, because when we think about the, the, these integration uh, protests, we think about Woolworth's counters, which sounds much more benign and all that. And you don't usually read about, you know, we want our Big Macs as part of the as part of the civil rights movement. So, so, how, so how is it that even early on before this moment you're describing African-Americans are demanding access to McDonald's food?
1: This is the part of the research that I found so fascinating because I had an inkling that, you know, McDonald's enters into the franchise system in the mid 1950s when Ray Kroc moves it from Southern California to um, suburban Chicago. And so McDonald's is expanding, you know, pretty consistently throughout the country. And this question of segregation never really comes up in the McDonald's telling of history. And so when I discovered that McDonald's was a target in North Carolina after the February 1st, 1960 protests from the students uh, at North Carolina A&T, when I saw that a McDonald's in Memphis is practicing segregation, it makes sense. These businesses are franchises and they are complying with local law or local custom as people said then. And you know they are getting engaged in the in the practice of um, you know separate um, but equal in the various ways that you could do that in a drive-through, whether it's separate windows, whether it's rules that, you know, Blacks have to order after all the whites have ordered and been served. And the thing that's so powerful in that research is that the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee organized against the McDonald's in Pine Bluff, Arkansas for their segregated practices. And I thought to myself, how has McDonald's been written out of this story of desegregation? And I, you know, speculate that because they had so... Um, with such a full throat had said that they were on the right side of history after 68 and opening up franchising to black business people, that that history just got erased so quickly. It's really strange how that never comes up in a few histories of SNCC. People might mention Pine Bluff, Arkansas, but McDonald's is, is part of it. And of course it makes sense.
0: Well, it, it, uh, what's I think important in documenting that, is that it's you know it's not some institution that rises above or somehow apart from the kind of racial terrain of Jim Crow, in which permeates American culture. You know, it still does, but certainly a bit more so you know you know back then. Uh, but still, African Americans want access to fast for, to this to this franchise, perhaps more as a racial justice, and because they're they're enamored of the food there. So you mentioned in your in your answer. Um, The shift that, okay, this is the first phase, demanding access to McDonald's as customers. Then there's a moment of demanding access to McDonald's as franchise operators, which is a big, huge shift. Um, This, go ahead.
1: Oh, no, please finish your question. Sorry. sorry, Sorry.
0: Please explain. Please explain how this shift takes place.
1: Yeah, you know, I think this is really such a fascinating. Question because it gets to the heart of the dilemma of buying black as a political strategy. What does that actually mean? And so the recruitment of black franchise owners was something that had been discussed at McDonald's uh, previous to 68. But after King's assassination, there were these other gestures towards, you know, kind of rethinking um, strategies towards the black community banks get involved in it you know JP Morgan Chase all of these different entities say you know we are trying to open the doors for opportunity and so McDonald's starts recruiting black franchisees to replace the white franchise owners who no longer want to do business in black communities and I think this idea of ownership becomes so powerful because you have this very established brand that is associated with so much wealth that is becoming more and more you um, visible nationally and you have this effort to put you know african americans at the at the front of it and i think what happens is that the pressure that the business community broadly particularly small business is receiving from black communities in saying, you know, who should be making money in this community and how, is also animating McDonald's decision to, you know, develop what they called the black store strategy or the urban store strategy to place stores to place the franchisees in a position that um, kind of absolves them from that critique. And I think it's hard for us today to imagine, but you know, there was a for a significant period of time. The rules of McDonald's franchising was that if you were a franchise owner, you couldn't have another job and you had to be very present in the store. So from the perspective of the 60s and the early 70s, you knew who your franchise owner was. This was usually a man who was a pillar of the community who did a lot of philanthropy. And at some point, you, know, you may meet him in the store. And so there was a real awareness and sensibility of who is at the you know the, the lead in this business and if it's black owned or white owned it really shaped the way that um, african americans approached it and this idea of black franchise ownership you know creates a lot of drama in some cities as mcdonald's is trying to expand into those black neighborhoods i mean
0: there's echoes of the importance of african american insurance representatives for long times in the african american community as a way for, um, if you will, national insurance companies to expand their their base in areas. And of course, that's an important occupation for African-Americans to be able to accumulate capital and to engage with the community.
1: You know, I think the models of black business ownership that preceded this kind of moment of franchising is really interesting because I would argue that, you know, they, sometimes the position of these individuals obscured all of these power dynamics behind them so you think the insurance uh business owner ins- you know he owns the insurance company well he doesn't really own the insurance company there's all sorts of underwriting um you know uh the black owned bank um is an institution but it's rare that you find a business that is operating in a kind of monoracial way. And that's what's so great about, I think, the story about franchising, because there are moments where people are very upset with McDonald's and they want to critique McDonald's, but they want to exempt the McDonald's that are franchised by African-Americans because they shouldn't be targets of scrutiny, but McDonald's should be targets of scrutiny. And so the question is, you know, is a Black-franchised McDonald's actually a Black-owned business?
0: we we'll leave that as a question, but I want to ask you uh, something which relates to that. One thing that you show, which of course makes sense and has a lot of power, is that these McDonald's franchises owned by African-Americans were extremely profitable, in many cases far more profitable than white franchises. Can you explain that?
1: Yeah, you know, I think that when McDonald's embarked on this journey to recruit Black franchise owners, they thought that this was a stopgap measure, perhaps, or a way of, um, you know, securing the investments they had made into franchise locations that had the white franchisees who no longer wanted to do business in those communities. And what they soon discovered is that McDonald's was popular with African Americans as well. And they were also entering sometimes a business environment in which so many other businesses had left. I think that um, that move of capital, the move of small, medium-sized businesses, chains, this has an important economic impact on communities. And McDonald's um, Black franchisees are leveraged by not only the brand, but the capacity of McDonald's to be in these communities. And so they see that people are going to McDonald's often, people feel comfortable there. And when the Black owned stores are, you know, emerging in the 1970s during the oil embargo, they are really seeing um, important gains because they are more likely to be in communities where people are not driving to a McDonald's, unlike the suburbs. And, you know, I think that this moment during the oil crisis, McDonald's really sees what it has in these Black franchise stores and um, continues to make that commitment. The, you know, and this is a double-edged sword because I think for a lot of the early black franchisees, they would say that they were at an incredible disadvantage in the McDonald's system because they were confined to doing business in certain areas and the access to capital was still an issue that they faced.
0: But they're working. McDonald's is learning there's money to be made in those, you know, in those areas there. So McDonald's supports marketing. And marketing, of course, is the key to the brand and all that. And one thing that you show is how McDonald's learns uh, or how McDonald's franchises, perhaps that should be said differently, learn or engage in marketing to the African American community. Tell us some of those techniques. How do they learn? What do they start doing to expand, if you will, this beachhead of African American consumers?
1: This is probably the most fun part of the research project, um, looking at the old advertisements and commercials. Um, So the group that becomes the National Black McDonald's Operators Association appeals to McDonald's and says, look, we're making lots of money and you're not advertising in the places that our customers are tuning into. And so they try initially to just simply put black bottles into ads using the slogans that McDonald's had traditionally used. There's a, you know, almost apocryphal story about um, you deserve a break today being targeted towards black consumers. And they are like, this is not working for us. What, what breaks do we get in the society? And so they um, enlist Burrell Communications to come in and design the culturally relevant ads and, you know, black models and uh, black representations of the black family ad copy that uses slang in a very cringy way from our perspective today, but um, you know, pretty effective stuff. And then Eventually, as the television ads become more sophisticated, you see more black entertainment. You see more black entertainers and athletes in these ads. But it's the peripheral work that I think is most fascinating because McDonald's puts its stamp on um, very black cultural um, productions, like gospel music tours. They are sponsoring a double Dutch league. They're is a moment in the early 1980s that McDonald's is among a few corporations that's actively sponsoring the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday because even after its passage, it was not popular. Um, And King was still such a divisive figure in the early 1980s that even though it was reluctantly Uh, passed by federal legislation, I think McDonald's understanding its resonance in Black communities and the franchise owners who are using the holiday to create all sorts of content, they start making, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. um, mini biographical films and books and all sorts of ephemera that is provided in the stores. And so they are able to really be in the cultural places that black people are and sponsor the things that black people want to see. And I think in the pre-internet and the pre kind of highly stylized cable era in a time where there are very few African-Americans on television, this is really, really impactful.
0: I mean, one thing you, you, you draw out there, which I want to ask you to say more about is the complexity about talking about McDonald's, because we like speaking about corporations as if they're a thing. And what you just said is that it's not a thing. It's actually, if you will, a collection of things. One of them, of course, is the hierarchy, the people who are running it back in the headquarters, but it's also these franchises. And what you detail is an element that these franchises have power, that their ability to influence both the national corporation, and they have capacity to do things among each other. That are different than what other sections of McDonald's are doing. Is that is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that there is a sense that there needs to be um, some flexibility and dexterity when targeting communities. And I think that you know one of the things I hope I emphasize in the book. Um, I think about this often. Um, in light of the time I spent on the road before COVID closed everything down with the book is that we have to think about consumer politics um, as a reflection of a proximity to other types of um, belonging. That it isn't that we're just manipulated by ads and we buy stuff. We have a whole backstory that we bring to the stuff and marketing is effective because it recognizes that history. And I say all of this is to say it is a very big deal for a McDonald's to open up on the South side of Chicago in 1970. It is a very big deal for an African-American in 1974 to know they can walk into a McDonald's and they will not be insulted. Um, If we think about the context in which this market experience is emerging in the lives of people who are not removed from the days where you go into the wrong um, diner and you may lose your life, right? You stop at the ra- or the wrong gas station, and this may be the last time your family knows what happens to you. I mean, there is a layer of fear and anxiety that is about the consumer experience that McDonald's and their interventions is. Is aware of in a sense, and they are, you know, they're finding an inroads into Black communities by alleviating some of that stress. And in the process, it is a big deal to go to McDonald's, even if we think of it as just a quotidian part of our lives. If we think of it as not very special, it isn't the again, it isn't the food product. It's it's all of the layers um, that surround it that have been. Um, so exclusive, um, even if it wasn't, uh, you know, cost prohibitive. And so I think that those are some of the ways that I hope that when we talk about the history of corporations that we keep these dynamics in mind. I mean, certainly
0: um, my own interviews with African Americans about lives in the fifties and sixties, you know tremendous challenges to being treated properly in businesses you know, long after Jim Crow is gone, or even if Jim Crow is illegal in some of these places, the level of, you know, being, you know, uh, disrespected, or not served, or served spoiled food, or not being allowed to try on hats or clothes, this is, this is pervasive through these communities in the 50s and even in the early 60s. And there's, there's a story to be written about the boycotts demanding access in many places, north, uh, in the northern part of the US, so what, what, what you say is very powerful because in the memory of these same people is this era of discrimination, informal discrimination, where not state, but by firms, and here is a firm that reaches out to them.
1: It's and also the fact that, you know, it, and it isn't just kind of like the discrimination in the restaurants, you know, on the franchisee sides, you know, getting the bank loan, getting the permits, getting the new equipment from McDonald's. Right. So there's uh, one of the things I wanted to talk about, because I think what was so hard about writing this book Is that I didn't want to kind of celebrate, (laughs) I don't want to celebrate, you know, capitalism, um, nor did I want to wag my finger at people with constrained choices. But I wanted to make it very clear that um, the source of our critique has to be informed by a recognition of the very narrow pathways. To economic stability, the very narrow interpretations of what a community needs or doesn't need is what everyone is kind of working with during this time period. And so sometimes when people talk about McDonald's, they talk about it with a level of seriousness and gravitas that um, that we say, "Wow, that's a very intense take on McDonald's." And they're not talking about McDonald's itself; they're talking about a long history of exclusions. Mm -hmm. And they're talking about this thing that is so representative of all of the impulses, both good and bad about America that they have access to.
0: Absolutely, well, let me ask you about something you referred to early on, which is this uh, this whole dynamic you're describing is of course influenced by the federal government and by the state Mm -hmm. uh, in a very, very big way. And You spent a lot of space in your book talking about the impact of federal policies uh, on this. Uh, can you explain that, how federal policies influence McDonald's, but also, it, you also show how it didn't help independent black businesses in the same way. So I can think- you explain some of that to us.
1: You know, I think that there's a myth, there's a series of myths about what the federal government is willing to do for people of color. And these are the myths that turn into when I was teaching at the University of Oklahoma, you know, every um, every time someone encountered uh, a Native American student, they assumed that they went to college for free and that no strings attached. Um, It's when people overstate the impact of affirmative action policies, right? Like there's always an overstatement. And when we think about um, the federal government's support of minority and what we call minority and women-owned businesses, there is a sense that it's like, you know, all grants, you know, all kind of free access. And in this period of time, you know, when the federal government, and again, entities like the Ford Foundation are saying, we want to support Black entrepreneurship. People said Black business ownership. I think that there was a sense that, oh, well, definitely federal bunnies were coming through, you know, the Urban League and um, the NAACP and people are opening bookstores and they were opening small restaurants and grocery stores. And so because of that assumption, there is this castigation, well, why don't Black neighborhoods have You know, long standing businesses. Why isn't there this legacy of black business ownership if there was all of this opportunity? And, you know, people who were skeptical of black capitalism um, like uh, I think his name is Ted Cross, Um, Ted Cross and others in the period of the 1960s, they say, like, if you take a look after what happens in Watts, California, all of these people swarmed in and said they were going to help, but no banks were actually, you know, financing or providing loans. And so people were essentially given a series of workshops, they were given homework, they were given mentors, but the real access to capital wasn't there. And so when you think about which businesses had the capacity to take the a kind of risk to bring black people into their, you know, operations, then it is McDonald's, it is Burger King, it is Kentucky Fried Chicken, um, you know, shortly thereafter, because they are established brands and anyone who's trying to open a startup to compete with them, they are just decades behind. And I think, I think the thing that I guess I find vexing is that, this logic still predominates in the ways that we think about what communities need. I promise you, well, I shouldn't say this. Well, yeah. I can promise you this. <laughs> Most of the apps that people are designing now are not going to fundamentally lift people out of poverty. It just, it doesn't work like that. And so we've substituted small business for coding and for tech and for startup and incubators and all of the bad ideas of the 1960s have been given life. Well,
0: what you stress there is the importance of capital that, you know, and capital is both financial and also intellectual property and brands are a form of capital and they're recognized as such. They're, they're, they're an asset, which helps the balance sheet of firms there. So one of your answers is that McDonald's has capital, both intellectual property capital of a brand. If you open this up there, people know what they're going to get. You don't have to establish a
1: product. The other is, for- yeah, Go ahead. Oh, they also have buying power. The supply chain is determined by McDonald's. The supply chain does does not tell McDonald's how much potatoes are going to cost or how to get beef to the stores. McDonald's sets those terms. And so the idea that, you know, these businesses in the 60s, these startup uh, Black-owned businesses that have grants, that have support from public-private partnerships, that they could enter the same space as a McDonald's is... You know, is is such a setup for failure. And what becomes the narrative is that well, black people don't want to support black owned businesses. It's like no, black owned businesses are not sustainable, and they're not sustainable sustainable in the ways that um, the projection of what they were um, supposed to be. That's just impossible.
0: I think what you also show is that there's some there's some businesses like McDonald's that can also open the door to financing. How does that work out? How does McDonald's help leverage money so that these franchisees can open the stores and meet the requirements to open these stores?
1: Well, there are a few things that were happening uh, in the late 60s and early 1970s. McDonald's knew how to access um, the federal funds for minority-owned businesses, and franchises were um, determined small businesses for those purposes. So they were able to tap into the Office of Minority business enterprise. The second thing is that McDonald's could tell the banks to start lending. Because if you look at that initial group of Black franchisees, a lot of them said that they had problems going to local banks and looking for loans in order to um, you know, pay that initial franchise fee. And for upkeep and operations, McDonald's could lend directly to those franchisees or they could forgive loans, they can forgive rents. McDonald's can um, take hits on its balance sheet. And McDonald's was one of, um, you know, was an early adopter of the model of purchasing the real estate in which their businesses were built. So they have this incredible real estate portfolio And they have the business and they have the brand. And so the capital is coming from a lot of different sources. And so if they want to discount franchise fees for African-Americans, they can. And what they can then do is say to banks like the Hyde Park Bank in Chicago, you need to start lending to our guys and they know who they are. And so it's this, you know, what do they say? The the. Um, the tail wagging the dog in many ways. And so those are the power dynamics, the structures that are obscured from i think a lot of the the public when they're trying to assess whether business development is a civil rights strategy um and so it's this incredible power and mcdonald's has incredible lobbying power they have a direct line to the white house for decades and they are helping set not only the policies around wages but also There's a huge conversation among the National Labor Relations Board about who you work for when you work at a franchise. Do you work for McDonald's or do you work for the franchisee? And McDonald's loves to say these people are not our employees, that if they are sexually harassed, if they're harmed, if they're not making any money, if they need paid sick leave, that is up to the franchisee.
0: I mean, this goes back to the point earlier about the profitability of these franchisees, you know, the African-American franchisees. You can imagine some accountant or accounting people inside McDonald's without a whit of sympathy for the issues you have. Look at the numbers and say, well, it's worthwhile investing and supporting the startups in these areas because over the course of 10 years, we're going to get it all back. We're going to get the money and they need a little bit of help to get on their feet. But it's, it's a good investment for us to make those loans to forgive some costs at a certain point. And of course that, yeah, go ahead, go ahead.
1: And we own the land and we can take the store back. I mean, that's the other thing. Stores can be taken back and reassigned very easily. Um, And this is, you know, during COVID, there has been a lot of contention among franchisees of all colors. And there's there's a recent lawsuit with more than 50 black franchisees about some of the issues I write about in franchise from the late 60s and early 70s. Are they being redlined exclusively into black communities? Do they have access to enough capital to sustain um, demands for um, modernization in the stores? You know, can they afford all day breakfast in terms of balancing out um, their costs? And these same questions come up about what does it mean to be disadvantaged in a system in which you Become a millionaire at the same time.
0: Big questions there. Well, um, I think this is the this is the grand arc. Let me ask you some questions, closing questions about sort of your overall analysis. You know of this. Um, you have a couple of statements at the end that I want you to to elaborate on. One is you say, this is on two forty three, that the protests which facilitated this black capitalism, the franchisees from McDonald's and other franchisees that you go into some detail about, benefited the companies. More than the communities. Why do you feel that? In other words, this benefits McDonald's, and you also mentioned Burger Kings, and we're not getting into that in this in this interview, but it's a great section worth reading. Uh, why does it do that? You don't think it benefits the communities to the same extent that the fast food companies are benefited by this dynamic that you described?
1: Well, I mean, because the companies have already, they've become, they've um, they've started from a winning position. Um, that what communities get is philanthropy, communities get um, health screenings at a McDonald's, communities get um, sweepstakes and communities get low wage work. Um, These are all sometimes um, interventions that are good to the extent that they are solving immediate problems, but the house always wins. Whoever starts with more capital, more power, more influence, more access to um, the political economy will always win. And so this is why I'm you know so offended that when we talk about issues of racial injustice, that this idea of businesses can provide a solution to that. It's like, well, what are you talking about? If we're talking about equality and justice, everything that these business models are predicated on is about an inequality. That's how they, that's how they work, that's how they get big. And so, you know, this was, this was something that provided um, a constrained pathway to economic success for very, very few people and it provided an opportunity for um, some donations to some important uh, institutions. Um, But I think the most destructive thing is that it provided a precedent or perhaps a model that people have come to believe can do so much more than it actually can.
0: And what's it spell out for me that model that you're that you're that you're criticizing?
1: Um, That you saturate um, a community with, or you saturate communities with a business. You um, concede some power to African Americans in that business system. And you say that this is a step forward. You say that this is moving closer to King's dream by suggesting that wealth trickles down. I mean, I think that the two things that I should have been more explicit in the book is that this is a form of trickle-down economics that we don't mark as such because it's shrouded in this idea of um, Black empowerment and Mm -hmm. Black achievement. And that the second thing was that um, so much of the scholarship about the 1970s, about black capitalism and this very uneasy period after 68 suggests that black capitalism was an overall failure because people say, well, Soul City didn't happen. And all of these guys in Detroit who wanted to open a soap factory, that failed. But this is an example of black capitalism being so successful that we don't market as such. Oh. We don't see... McDonald's expansion of black community as proof of black capitalism actually working within a context because all of these other kind of more dramatic, more funny, more easy to lampoon efforts did not get off the ground.
0: Well, so in a way, what you've done is you've taken a success story and said, well, imagine this succeeded more broadly. Where would we be? Mm. Is that fair to say?
1: I think that I took a success story and I made it very uncomfortable um, because it was successful. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean it was good.
0: Well, you have a wonderful line where you say that your narrative yields, a quoting here, 263, yields a story of troubling success. Is that what you're referring to? This is a success,
1: but it's- Did I troubling. write that? I haven't yes, read the book in a while. <laughs> yes, um, it is a troubling success because I, 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 I want everyone to feel very- um, uncomfortable as they read how the story plays out and I was um, I had done a book event in February of 2020 um, and I was on a plane back to back home to Washington and I just kind of got so emotional as like almost crying I was so I think I was exhausted from the travel but I think what I realized that I had written a book about people who had such enthusiasm and such, excitement about what they could do meaning the black franchise community like this could be the thing that transforms it all because i think in 1968 even though you know there had been uh you know uh lots of critiques of capitalism that came out of the civil rights movement. And there was a lot, there's a long black radical tradition of being skeptical of institutions. And in 1968, you get this opportunity, you get to walk through the store that no one had any idea, like what was on the other side. And that even your success is so um, fractured or truncated by the realities of the limits of that success, of the things that you know you can't do, and I think you know, for myself as a as a person who's had a, who has a very successful academic um, career as a as a black academic, I mean, there was something about that that really kind of stung and felt very personal. Mm. Um, I've worked exceedingly hard at trying to be a good scholar. I've worked exceedingly hard at trying to be a good teacher. I've tried to, you know, I will show up on time and I will answer your email and I will do all of these things. But to see that um, my students are still experiencing a lot of the things that I experienced as an undergraduate, to see the lack of diversity among my colleagues and the graduate student community and all of these things, it's kind of like, wow, this was a lot of effort. Where did it necessarily get us? And I think that this is why we always have to push ourselves to ask different Questions about what does success actually look like, and what does it mean when it is, in fact, troubling.
0: Well, that's a great answer. I, I think we should end the interview on that because that's a okay. wonderful summary. Um, I think one other reason I thought that your book was so good is that it, it ends with more questions. It doesn't. It does leave you uncomfortable. It does leave you wondering how to balance all these things? And I think those are the kind of books which which endure. Tell a story but you know it will prompt a great uh, class conversation. I know that when I next teach my history of capitalism course, your book's gonna be in it, and maybe I can get you to come in there and talk with some of the students. I would um, love that. About, about what it is there. So uh, this is, um, uh, at Marcia Chatelaine, this is the book franchise, Golden Artists in Black America. I'm sure it's gonna be out in paperback soon uh, because of its popularity. I have friends who've been posting that they've read it and all that. Um, it's a great accomplishment. Uh, It's a great interview, Marsha. I really appreciate you sitting here and, and listening to us.
1: Thank you so much. It was a great conversation. All right.
0: I'm just going to end the recording now. Okay.